0: People will sort of separate out communication as separate from behaviour or as action as separate from words. And we say things like "Action speaks louder than words and you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And we have this idea that talking and words aren't really doing anything, whereas actions are and behaviours are. But of course, for me, there isn't really a clear line between actions, talk, behaviour, language. They're all sort of the same thing.
1: Welcome back to Measures of Gratitude from human, a podcast about gratitude and how to practice it in our personal and professional lives. I'm Mike Lovett. This is episode two, Communication. Last week, we talked about what gratitude really is. And if you're just joining, I hate to say this, I never want to turn someone back, but go start there. If you hit pause, it's like we're all waiting for you. We won't even be able to tell the difference. Okay, you're caught up. So gratitude, in a nutshell, is a culminating feeling of appreciation and a necessity to sustaining human life. Pretty big stuff. All right, a culminating feeling of appreciation. Let's start there. So what is appreciation a culmination of? Well, Dr. Robert Emmons calls gratitude the ultimate touchpoint of human existence, which, again, pretty heavy. But touchpoint is the part I want to focus on. What are all the touch points that we have with the people in our lives? Let's just list them out. All right, we've got face-to-face conversations in all its varieties, which, yes, is in the thousands. But for simplicity's sake, we're going to toss them into one bucket. Then there are texts, phone calls, emails, Zoom calls, Teams meetings, notes, Slacks, group chats, DMs. What am I missing? The point is communication is at the core of all of them. So I want to get to the core of this. How do our daily conversations and interactions, in our case with peers and coworkers, but you could apply it to friends and family too? How do they build and strengthen relationships? How do they connect us? I put these questions and more to our guests this week.
0: I'm Elizabeth Stoko. I'm professor of social interaction at Loughborough University in the UK.
1: Elizabeth Stoko, a professor of social interaction at Loughborough University in the UK. She is the author of Talk. The science of conversation and co-author of crisis talk negotiating with individuals in crisis she has studied interactions of all kinds in healthcare mediation education sales dating police interviews and even hostage negotiations
0: i'm a psychologist by background but unlike quite a bit of psychology I study the world and people interacting in the world as a conversation analyst would, which basically means rather than putting people into a laboratory or asking people post hoc on a survey or in an interview about their life, whether that be their relationships, their attitudes, their prejudices, all of the things that psychologists are interested in. I study all of those kinds of things, but as live matters handled by people in real life, in real encounters, in the wild as they unfold.
1: Elizabeth leads the conversation analytic role play method, or CARM, which is focused on real life conversations. She has listened to more transcripts and recordings than anyone I will ever meet, and it has helped her study the most minute subtleties in interactions. One of the first things she'll tell you is when too much has gone into setting up a conversation, what you get is less real.
0: I study recordings that have been made where the lights are on, if you like, or a camera is there, or there's at least an audio microphone. So it's not just the presence of the recording device that makes a difference. Because when you telephone the doctor, the council, the bank, anything these days, you're told your call may be recorded for quality and training purposes. And those recordings look quite different to the recordings that I have, where people are in a role play or a simulation, where you do see, not so much hamming it up, but you kind of see things like, you know, when you take your driving test, And you know that you're being assessed on certain criteria. And so you're not hamming up the fact that you're checking in the mirror. But what you are doing is making sure that the examiner sees very explicitly everything that is examinable and assessable. And so it's a bit like that. You see people overdoing some of the things that you know are on the assessment. And what's interesting is that when you look at the real interaction by comparison, some of those things aren't in them or they're done differently and they're better. But somewhere in that mix, the person putting together the examination and assessment criteria has decided that this way of doing very simple things, like even introducing yourself, this is the best way to do it.
1: One of those assessments Elizabeth studied, as I mentioned earlier, is police interviews. And yes, how they introduce themselves is the first thing they're graded on.
0: In the research that I did looking at police interviews with real suspects versus police interviews in training with actors playing the part of suspects. One of the very basic things that happens right at the start of these interviews is and to adhere to the law, the police officers introduce themselves and anybody else present. And in the real interviews, they typically say, I'm PC Stoko, give my number and then say Loughborough Police Station, something like that. In the simulation, the role play, they say, my name is Liz Stokoe. Feel free to call me Liz. <laughs> And you can kind of see that that's done to build rapport, but it doesn't really happen in the real ones because they've presumably done some of that work before the recording device was switched on anyway. So the difference between my name is X versus I'm X might seem trivial. They're still doing the introduction, so maybe it doesn't matter. But another conversation analyst called Sarah Atkins did some research looking at GPs talking to real patients and then GPs talking to simulated patients to pass their communication skills exams to see what happened. And what was interesting was not only that she found the same difference. So in the real consultations, doctors are likely to say, I'm Dr. X, whereas in the role plays, they say, my name is Dr. X. The criteria mark you down if you say, I'm and where's that coming from? That's coming from no evidence base at all. It's just something that someone's decided is how we do introductions. And so then these things feed their way into criteria and people drop marks in an exam, which is a quite an important exam.
1: It's just something that someone's decided is a practice with a pretty brutal track record. And it plays an outsized role in the workplace. There is a hands at 10 and 2 equivalent that's responsible for the stunted nature of interviews presentations, and meetings with leaders. Everywhere there is a standard you're supposed to meet or guardrails you're to remain between, there is a silent assessment being taken according to a criteria that might be at best outdated, but at worst, sexist, racist, and biased. Now, as Elizabeth would tell me, too much guidance, too much expectation about how things should be done, especially in workplace settings, that can be counterproductive. Not only that, It's completely antithetical to authentic and meaningful communication.
0: I would say the good communicators are those that are feeling their way through the interaction and treating everything that the person that they're talking to is saying in a very tacit way. You can only really see this when you transcribe it like I do very closely. But in some tacit way, they are turning everything that the person they're talking to says into evidence for what they might say next. A really good communicator is very good at what conversation analysts call recipient design. Designing the turns that come out of their mouth for the recipient in front of them in subtle and tacitly beautiful ways sometimes that just create a smooth, frictionless interaction as you move through it.
1: The good communicator is a thread I wanted to follow. One, because it helps us on this mission of creating meaningful interactions with the people around us and therefore practicing gratitude. But two, because I see good communicator or strong communicator on every job description out there, and I don't really know what that means. And frankly, if I had to guess all you job describers out there, neither do you.
0: Yeah, so I mentioned that a key concept in conversation analysis is recipient design and recipient design means that the turns that you build, either in writing or in spoken interaction, the modality is not the most important thing. It's more important to think about how do you do any action for the person that you're talking to? And sometimes that might mean doing it incredibly opaquely. If you know somebody very well, if I'm at home and my partner walks past, all I need to do is gesture like I'm just waggling my hand in a cup-shaped way, that would mean get me a cup of tea <laughs> and with a little smile that would mean please. And so that's all it would take. Whereas, you know, if I now somehow wanted to ask you, Mike, to make me a cup of tea, that would be, how on earth would we manage that? Because we're not even in the same time zones. So that would be really complicated to try and ask and get fulfilled as a request. So a really good communicator is thinking about who is the person that I'm talking to? What do they know? What do we share already? How entitled am I to say the things that I'm going to say? How obliged are they to respond to things that I'm going to say? How important is the thing that I'm going to say? All of these things that should be kind of at play when you are interacting with somebody. The problem with communication skills as a topic is that there is so much written about it. And I love the fact that you've asked me about, you know, the strong communicator on every job description. i never never really even thought of that. What does it even mean? And it would probably cash out if you ask people into really stereotypical normative sounding things like able to listen, build rapport. Share the floor evenly. Things like that that we could all trot off as a list without really thinking about it too much. I did a little animation piece for a company that I was seconded to a couple of years ago to call "Stop Building Rapport," which just sounds ridiculous. Like, like why would you tell someone not to build rapport? But what I found when I look at lots of different encounters, from sales ones, you know, to health, to crisis negotiation, lots of different settings, is that people have often been trained to start that conversation off with bit of small talk, something introduce themselves things that seem very important for the upcoming interaction. But my research shows that actually rapport, if it's anything, it's the outcome of an encounter. It's the outcome of a process. And you decide whether or not you've got rapport or whatever that really means at the end of an encounter.
1: See, you don't even build rapport. Everything you and I know about communication is a lie. Now, Elizabeth assured me that small talk isn't bad. If you join a Zoom call before anyone else and make small talk about the weather or whatever, you're not practicing bad communication. But if you're cold calling a prospective client and leading with small talk, it might seem friendly to you, but it could be time wasting to them and that's not really doing the job you want it to. You haven't earned the rapport yet. Now, I'll be honest, at this point in our conversation, I was trying to play it cool, but I was a little intimidated. The idea of creating bespoke conversations for each person picking up on subtle clues and details so as to not fall down a rabbit hole of assumptions that would sour the conversation is a lot. Phrases like undivided attention and the cliche of someone making you feel like the only person in the world sprang to mind. And that feels like a huge responsibility to carry throughout the day with every conversation. But then she hit me with an analogy that put me at ease.
0: While everything that we do is kind of bespoken away and full of idiosyncrasies, It's also quite systematic, which might sound a bit strange. But one analogy just on this sort of difference between systematic and repetitive nature of social interaction, the building blocks are kind of the same for everything that you're doing versus idiosyncrasy. I like to get people to imagine that they're in a hot air balloon looking down on a field And as you're up high looking down on the field, you can see the whole architecture of that field and you can see one gate at one side and the other gate at the other side. And anyone who enters the field is going to be aiming for that other gate on the other side of the field. And you can also see the path because from above you can see what the arc is, you know, the most direct route probably from A to B. But imagine you're now looking at a dog walker and their dog. And one time you look down and the dog walker and the dog are basically walking together. All the way across the field really smoothly quite efficiently and they just they hit all the same landmarks all the way across and they get across it really smoothly and then imagine you know the next day you're looking down and you can see again the dog walker you know where that dog walker is going because you know what their end goal is and you also know the markers along the way but the dog is going everywhere and so the dog walker's got to like go back, get the dog out of the hedge, you know, turn around, pull it back onto the track and get it back onto the track and like double back. And then, and you're sort of seeing this really slow, messy progress, even though you're still hitting all the same weight marks and then you're still reaching the same destination. And I think conversation's is a bit like that.
1: You hear that job describers? A good communicator is like an efficient dog walker that sometimes has to pull the dog out of the hedge. Here's where the messiness of conversation has a limit, word choice. We as a society and as companies and as people are continually learning the impact of our word choice, which is a definitive net positive even if there are hard lessons along the way. The key is trying to be careful about the words you choose because it can make a massive difference in connecting with someone and there really isn't a positive alternative.
0: I think choosing your words carefully and having that as a policy in an organisation has to be everything. It's so important and it can only make people feel much better about the organisation, the workplace, the colleagues. Because one of the things that fascinates me as a conversation analyst is that sometimes people will sort of separate out communication as separate from behaviour or as action as separate from words. And we say things like actions speak louder than words and you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And we have this idea that talking and words aren't really doing anything, whereas actions are and behaviours are. But of course, for me, there isn't really a clear line between actions, talk, behaviour, language. They're all sort of the same thing. And if you think back to something unpleasant that happened at work and the ripple effects of that, it probably all happened through someone's poor choice of words or deliberately egregious choice of words or careless, unthinking choice of words, whether that's in the written modality, whether it's a gesture, all of the embodied ways in which we interact with each other, it's kind of doing everything all the time. You can't really escape it.
1: Because words shape so many of our interactions, they naturally become integral to the practice of gratitude. And one of the words Elizabeth highlighted was the word thanks. She asked me, and I'll ask you, how many conversations with coworkers or customer service reps, really anyone outside of your immediate circle of friends or family, how many conversations that really didn't amount to anything end with thanks, thanks, bye, bye? Typically. We think of that sign-off as a thank you for your time. Without the thanks, you feel like a jerk. And on the other end, they might think they've done something wrong if they don't hear it. But the thanks in such a case has become routine, a calibrating mundane function as Elizabeth described it. Now, calibrating mundane function doesn't exactly scream gratitude to me. So if we actually want to express gratitude, as we learned in episode one, we're going to need a little more.
0: When it comes to overtly appreciating somebody, then you tend to have to do a bit more than thanks. And if you only do a thanks, then it's perfunctory, typically. And you have to do a bit more work to up your appreciation, up a continuum, you know, from thank you very much, thanks so much, use your intonation to really underline the fact all the way through to not just thank you very much, but then you can add on the reason for the thanks. So you can sort of say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the present. It was so thoughtful. You can add a little assessment in. So you can kind of keep building from the perfunctory tokenistic thanks to a more fulsome expression of gratitude, to a reason for the gratitude, to an assessment of the thing that the person did that you really appreciate and add more and more bits to it. So I think that's a nice way to think about it as a scale of actions that you can keep adding to, to really underline your appreciation.
1: Okay, now we know what gratitude is and how we can effectively communicate in our interactions to practice it. To sum up, gratitude is a culmination of appreciation, which is a culmination of rapport, which is a culmination of effective communication. Everybody got that? Elizabeth left us with a homework assignment. Transcribe a conversation, any conversation, and see if anything sticks out. Pauses and ums, specific word choices and responses, you pick up on cues and apply them does the conversation result in rapport it's not about fixing how you communicate necessarily more about understanding your own idiosyncrasies next week we take the fundamentals of practicing gratitude and meaningful communication and we see what they're capable of in the workplace Thank you to my guest, Elizabeth Stoko. She'll be back next week to walk us through some workplace situations where communication is vital. In the meantime, you can check out her books, Talk the Science of Conversation and Crisis Talk, Negotiating with Individuals in Crisis. And you can stay up to date on the work she's doing by following her on Twitter at Liz Stoko and visiting CarmTraining.org. Measures of Gratitude is a production of Work Human. It is edited and mixed by Rob Velois and written and produced by Sarah Blisnalis and me with additional support from Sarah Mulcahy. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week.